We're going to be looking at the Comics Journal number 37 today, December 1977. Uh, we're going to start to go chronologically, but uh, over the past five years of Cartoonist Kayfabe, we've recorded several uh, conversations about interviews from Comics Journal, including Todd McFarlane, Bill Watterson, Mobius, Jack Kirby. Uh, search our channel. You could find those interviews. Uh, let's get on with the show. Welcome to your favorite comic channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Got a good one today, Jimmy, but got to let everybody know that Cartoonist Kayfabe comic book Christmas in July is uh, next Saturday, six days from now. Uh, this is where we are taking our comic book doubles. We are taking our comp copies sent to us from our publishers. We are going to our local comic shop, hitting a dollar bin, getting a bunch of comics to put in the free little lending libraries in our neighborhoods to spread comic book awareness, uh, create new comic readers this way. We also have a Patreon, and uh, the King Kayfabers on the Patreon, they have access to our live stream recording sessions. Uh, when we get together and make our episodes, they also get delivered all the videos before anybody else, thus mitigating the kayfabe effect. Without further ado, Jimmy, let's take a look at uh, the Comics Journal, issue number 37, December 1977. This is the first issue of Comics Journal that uh, is is a magazine. Um, before that, uh, it might have still been called Comics Journal for a little bit, but the guys at Fantagraphics, who would have been uh, Gary Groth and Mike Catron, bought... Uh, a zine called the the Nostalgia Journal. They operated a little while uh, under the banner of the New Nostalgia Journal, and then they started to pivot away from the Tchotchkes, you know, away from the Harryhausen, and away from the Tolkien, and uh, to focus more on their prime interests, which would have been uh, the the comic the comic industry, the comic book game. Uh, in the previous couple of issues of uh, the Comics Journal or the late new Nostalgia Journal, there would be advertisements for a zine in there called uh, Kapowi Wowzy or something like that. Wowzy Kazawi. And that was Kim Thompson's adjacent zine. You would see Kim Thompson's name in there. He was not, uh, he didn't buy in yet to uh, the Comics Journal and he didn't buy in yet here. Uh, he is just what they call an associate editor. He's not a co-publisher at this point. We have some supplemental materials to, to show off to give everybody a clue into uh, the, the sort of Fantagraphics uh, catalog before this. You know, like we got Fantastic Fanzine, which might be one of the last issues that Gary put out of uh, of this zine that he started in the damn 60s. Might have been like 68 or 69, maybe even earlier than that. I, and I, I do know that there were zines maybe going back as early as 65. Uh, this one has a lot of Starenko contribution in here. Club memos from Gary Roth. <laughs> this is a 1970 cover date. Got a portfolio of Starenko artwork. Kind of love seeing his pencils at that at that stage. Absolutely. They even look stylized. Got a big uh, interview with Jim Starenko in here. This may be before or after uh, Gary lived with Starenko. How about the eight ball up here is shades of fanographics things to come. <laughs> totally. I think what happens is the, uh, the the tape got jacked up and they might have had to uh, record the interview a second time. I think there were technical difficulties. But uh, lots of Starenko conversation in this. Uh, but this is basically what your fanzines were that were kind of comics criticism. 
one of my fears of us doing this mm -hmm. is is going down this fanzine rabbit hole <laughs> because it's so alive in the 70s like yeah. you can see what the comics journal is coming out of and as we go through this issue you will see so much fanzine uh ads mentions references and they even refer to some kind of like fanzine collapse of 76 right. which i have no idea about but it, it's it makes me so eager like whenever you mention kim thompson having his own fanzine i'm like oh i need to get on a horn with hamlin and see see if he's got one of those that i can look at and the last thing i want to do is start collecting a whole new vein of comics history totally but this stuff is really fascinating because like we start this channel with wizard right that's 90s coverage yeah we're gonna get into 80s big time there's so many amazing heroes comic scene comics interview comics journal all this stuff in the 80s but the 70s and before it's fanzines right totally this is 1972, copyright Carter Schultz, and it is published by Fant Fantagraphics. You see it right here, man, uh, Springfield, Virginia. Man, Gary might have still lived at his folks' house or something. So this is an actual comic that Fantagraphics put out. Might have been, you know, the first comic under the Fantagraphics uh, banner. But you could see where they were at in uh, these early days before the uh, comic journal. This video is brought to you by the Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon. There are three different levels to suit all of your needs. At the King Kayfaber top level, you will get access to all of our videos first and earliest to help curb the Kayfabe effect. You'll be the first one in line to buy those books. And at the King Kayfaber level, you get to sit in on our recording sessions. So welcome to the Brain Trust. It is also brought to you by the books that we make. The books that you can get from me include Hulk Grand Design, The Plain Janes, and Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive. These are all available currently in print. My upcoming releases include Street Angel Princess of Poverty, which will collect all of the Street Angel comics not in Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive, and True Crime Funnies, my most recent self-published comic book. You can get this at my Patreon or at my website. Ed Piscor has a big year coming up, starting with the hip-hop family tree Omnibus coming out this fall. You can pre-order that and put your name on a copy now. It collects all the Hip Hop Family Tree comics in one handsome volume along with 140 extra pages. So reserve that one today. X-Men Grand Design. All three volumes of X-Men Grand Design will be collected in one trade paperback this fall. Again, pre-order that one today. Some of these Grand Designs have gone out of print, so this is a way for you to read X-Men Grand Design conveniently. And the third season of Red Room Crypto Killers is currently being published. You can get that at your local comic book shop. There are also two trade paperback volumes in print and available for order wherever you buy books and comics. And now back to our video. Now, let's take a look, dude. Uh, one of the things that this issue has, you know, it would have been published, you know, the size of Time magazine or whatever. First issue that has color cover. Got like a three color cover going on here drawn by uh, John Workman with inks by Bob Smith uh, Star Wars brand new man it's a it's a brand new phenomenon uh, so we're going to get plenty of Star Wars coverage in the pages of the comics journal um, the issues prior to this would have been almost like the comic shop news you know like kind of like a half sheet you pull it out I'm not sure that there were even staples you know kind of like loose leaf uh, tabloid type things but not quite big tabloid it's funny to see Superman movie at the top, Star Wars the movie below the masthead, and it's like, well, that's a lot of movie coverage when you think about Fanographics and Comics Journal and, 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 and the attitude they're going to become known for. Such, <laughs> but such, the movies were big always. Their attitude is in here. <laughs> and uh, there's just such little stuff happening in comics, but there is some stuff going down for sure. Like, there there are some things happening. It's a, it's a very earliest... Uh, like direct market 
things are happening, but the tentpole direct market books aren't out yet. Yeah, it, I don't know if the direct market's even mentioned by that phrase in here, and that was something I was curious about, but one of the things I saw in an ad is Sabre, which yeah. is Eclipse's first graphic novel. We covered that in a previous video, but that really succeeds because of the direct market by selling it directly to comic shops and non-returnable you know, method. And that basically gets Eclipse up and running and I think inspires other companies like Pacific and some of these other early direct market publishers yeah. that, hey, this can be done this way. And it probably inspires Fanagraphics or, or vice versa, you know, like perhaps the Comics Journal uh, as they get more ground inspire some of these publishers as well. But it's really interesting when you think about what actually comes together to make that direct market the direct market. Not quite a monthly magazine. Not sure that it ever was exactly monthly. You could get a 10-issue subscription. And just even this kind of stuff is naive compared to like what Fantagraphics becomes. You know, it's very close to like Warren kind of thing. Definitely. And, and, and there would be a lot of like, you know, help magazine type stuff that would have you know, movie still with funny captions to uh, go along with it. Uh, there, you know, there's some semblance of a direct market when you have things like this out there. Art and Story magazine. Well, I wonder if this is something that would be a comics journal competitor at this point. Like yeah. maybe a little better than a zine, a little more professional, but still in those early days of what are we talking about? Yeah. We could paint a picture now, man, going directly to Newswatch. And uh, there's there's a lot of little stuff that you know shall shall bear fruit as as uh, time goes by man um there's a kiss comic that recently came out that kind of was that a uh, treasury uh i don't think so it may have been but i i, I really don't know it might have been magazine size because yeah, i think the beatles comic might have been magazine size they were talking about format and and something about the kiss format is uh is attractive that they're interested in going down that route a little bit more. Uh, the Star Wars adaptations have gone into still more printings. A second printing for the Treasuries. So the Treasuries are out there. A fourth for the 35 cent books, man. Uh, well over a million copies of each issue in print and still selling rapidly. It's only 1977 with, million, with over a million copies in print. Uh, this is why we have to call that kayfabe on that whole idea of like spider-man one x-force one x-men one being you know the top sellers x-men one might be eight eight million copies 8.6 million copies that that might be it in terms of comics history but uh there was lots of distribution back in these days and it would be impossible you would have to go directly to marvel to figure out how many copies were printed uh there must be more millions of copies of star wars than spider-man one in print at this point and this is pre-royalties. So Very in a lot of ways, if you're the artist on this, it doesn't matter if it sells 10 million or, or 10. Yeah, you got you're your page the same right. money. This is going to be the story that plays out uh, as we do, you know, corresponding and subsequent issues of the Comics Journal. Uh, we're going to see those inequities shape up. We got St uh, Steve Gerber, who is still doing um, Howard the Duck comics. And he's in the back of this issue here he's doing the howard the duck weekly newspaper strip so he's going to be one of the first guys that is going to these conventions seeing that howard the duck is going for basically more than what he got paid to even make the issue and he's not getting you know any rewards for that whatsoever so he calls he calls the bs on that roger mckenzie 
gets on the board for Daredevil, which is going to be a noteworthy piece because he will be the writer of Daredevil whenever Frank Miller jumps on board. Uh, Miller's name not mentioned once in uh, this entire issue, so he's he's a straight-up noob. X-Men is uh, finally going monthly with John Byrne on duties, man. So Cockrum leaves X-Men, but he's still connected with Chris Claremont through Ms. Marvel. And John Byrne is the dude drawing X-Men. But it is not quite... The, the, the only sense of it being any kind of a hit is that it's going to get a monthly slot. Uh, it's not mentioned as being a gangbusters hit by by any means. And from conversation I've heard with like Jim Shooter, it really is like the uh, the death of Phoenix that hits that tipping point for X-Men and keeps it the top book for 20, 25 years. That all said, we're going to see Claremont a few times in this yeah. issue. So he's definitely a guy who seems to be making noise, trying yeah. to make noise, getting in front of microphones, doing whatever he can. Like, like he's pushing yeah. himself, um, which... You know, why not? Uh, the other note that I took from this Newswatch Marvel part is Roy Thomas is writing a bunch of books. Yeah. And those books are having fill-in issues and things because they're late. And it makes me wonder about Thomas's reputation because I, I know he's often criticized. I don't know that I've read one of his comics. So I don't know whether that's something that is earned or if that's something that maybe there were bad politics at play uh, behind the scenes at Marvel because it does seem like... The way he's running it, I think he's editor-in-chief maybe at this point or, yeah. or, or one of the big editors. And uh, it just sounds like the tone here is things are not running well there. So I wonder about that. I do believe this is a pre-Jim Shooter era. And one of the things that would happen in the pre-Jim Shooter era is that the editors would write their own books also. So there were no checks and balances in a lot of ways. So you had Len doing his own wing. You had Marv doing his own wing. Uh, Roy Thomas is still there doing his thing. Think about the corruption in terms of I'm the editor, I'm getting paid staff position, you know, probably a salary, probably benefits, but then also I'm going to write some books and get paid, pay myself some freelance Ta stuff. Taking some skim. Yeah, you you got to have some kind of system probably to keep that from happening or else it's just going to become devolve into corruption. Yeah, and all the books are late. Uh, Jim Shooter get, gets all the books back on time, you know, after after a little while. Figures out cost-cutting cost measures and they finally start making money. Uh, the Simon & Schuster books are happening for Marvel, so they're talking about the next one that's coming uh, forward for uh, down the pike with that. Great Marvel Battles. Then there's going to be a Best of the Hulk. Which will be the first one that focuses on just one character. Yeah. That cover I reproduce in the uh, collection of the Hulk Grand Design because I think it's you know that's a significant book, as as noted here in the beginning of uh, Comics Journal the magazine. Len Wein is bouncing man. He's going exclu exclusively to DC. Going to be picking up big titles there, dude. Uh, detective for a while, doing some Batman works. Uh, this is the mention of the uh, Justice League of America newspaper strip in which the syndicates are bristling at that word America in the, in the title. Like, they they don't want it to be called that. And I think that is because a big chunk of uh, syndicate business really is foreign newspapers. And uh, maybe it rings a little jingoistic to a Dutch newspaper or something. You know, even beyond that, just having the name America makes it a smaller title than if it's Justice League. Sure. You know, you've got Superman and Wonder Woman as, like, the anchors for that series yeah. at this time. Um the, that's international heroes, you know, like why limit it? Exactly. Superman versus Muhammad Ali tabloid has been rescheduled yet again, this time for a January release, which would be a month after publication here. Uh, pencil script are now finished. Dick Giordano 
is on the inking chores. So I think that this is was a was a book that was uh, much anticipated. Definitely. And we'll get a little more coverage of that later in this issue when there's a sidebar with Janet Kahn. Yeah. And she talks about, like, she went to Neil Adams. You know, he's a superstar. Why isn't he working in comics? And it was money. Yeah. So she doesn't come right out and say it, but I wonder if he was getting some kind of a um, royalty deal on that book because she does talk, well, don't want to get ahead of it, but sure. it's a big anticipated book and it makes me curious about later issues of the Comics Journal and how they cover that book. Yeah. Because that sounds like, like a big deal. Yeah, we'll get there, man, for sure. Uh, we got DC Mario go around. Uh, editor Mike Catron from the Comics Journal doing some uh, PR work for DC Comics. So in steps associate editor Kim Thompson. Uh, in, there you go. Into the mixture to uh, help... help uh, keep keep the buses running on time at the journal perfect timing when you think of this as being maybe the the start of the comics journal that we know and here comes kim thompson in the door you see a bunch of names that you recognize you see starlin bob kaniger you see mike kaluda all mentioned so this is the this is the landscape of comics jerry storm jerry conway doing firestorm you know it's slightly dismal there's a there's a price hike that that's happened with with comics uh, jumped up to uh, 35 cents, but they're going to add some more story pages into uh, into the comics going from 17 to 25 pages. And that's going to come up again, too. And also that whole idea of format, because like you talk about like Marvel having some success with the Kiss format, which I think was a more expensive magazine. Why that matters is there were newsstands that were reluctant to put comic books out at all because a 30 cent comic. Or a 35 cent comic yeah that's just not how you make money right you can sell these magazines for a buck or more a lot more profit in that than there is in a 30 cent comic so these publishers are kind of getting it from both ends on one hand 35 cents too expensive on the other hand not expensive enough to be make time for the newsstand to uh, clear shelf space but those treasuries are their way in they are they are dollar books and who even thinks about this you know as a reader like i never even thought about it that way until this week reading this right the Superman movie is is impending. Uh, it's going down. These are some of your early steals. And what they're talking about here is that uh, there are some winners of a, like a DC contest or something. Uh, you write in, you send some stuff in, and you might you get to show up in the movie. So two people showed up. That's that's basically what they're what they're uh, promoting here. Really, it's a way to hot shot the magazine to get people to buy it. You know, Starlog magazine might be out at this time, having all that kind of coverage. So it would be dumb not to have a little bit of coverage. That's a great image. That yeah. Superman image, just on its own, compared to nothing else, that's a great image. Parts one and two of Superman have, are being filmed simultaneously. So that that's an, that's an interesting thing. I, I don't know about any of that. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit uh, in the weekly and just the idea. My guess is it's an expensive movie. I know it was an expensive movie at the time. Uh, maybe you offset costs by doing getting two movies out of that budget. A little bit of controversy. James, uh, in in the uh, in the zine in the zine culture, media scene, which is uh, Jim Steranko's uh, fanzine or whatever, shoplifts Superman article. Uh, if you if you fuck with media scene at all, uh, you could type the exact verbatim listings of like whatever they're talking about with the movies, and you pop that into Google, and you'll see that come up in a million places because they pretty much just transcribed press releases. It really didn't have, it was closer to an ad zine than, than, you know, a, a fanzine with content. 
and that's that's what these kind of things were like comics journal type magazines they really didn't have content it would be places like a big giant classified ad page or something where where you could just buy different things back issues bud plant will show up and what we're dealing with here is uh there is a professionally written article that was in some i don't know 50 yeah, it was a bunch of newspapers. Places. The one they pull was from the Washington Star, but it was in a lot of newspapers. Yeah, exactly. And, but that writer, they, they talked to the journal, and uh, he's fucking pissed because it basically got transcribed with a little bit of purple prose added here and there to kind of like massage a little bit, but there's no question. No, and that, the changes are speculated that that's Jim Steranko's editing style because <laughs> he wanted these shorter sentences, uh, which I actually like that kind of writing style a little bit. But yeah, totally a lift, and you can compare them for yourself here. And, you know, going from like what you described as ad zines, Ed, this is your example of journalism. You know, we're going to get a couple of pages uh, in, of, of this coverage of what this article what happened here yeah and so you know like this is one of those features that the journal is going to start to do and i don't just mean like catching somebody plagiarizing something but a little bit more in depth like talk to the writers talk to all the players involved and figure out exactly what happened here and it's it's pretty fascinating the way this thing steers out because gary groth worked for jim steranko he has a relationship with them we looked at that fanzine that was like all steranko uh you know by gary groth so at this point like groth calls him to talk about what happened and Steranko just has no interest in this. And he's like, you know, it's journalism, who cares? Does anybody monitor any of this stuff? Just really kind of like giving journalism no respect. And Groth is like, on the spot I named three magazines, publications that only do this. Like they just investigate this kind of, of you know, ethics in journalism. And uh, Steranko then goes off the record. So it's, it's a pretty substantial article on Jim Steranko's editing and how this uh how this happened and how big a deal is this and that's media scene number 26 so we're dealing with you know comics journal 37 media scene 26 these are these are these are businesses oh yeah yeah media scene published by super graphics journal published by fanographics right and you know when gary and mike bought the new nostalgia journal or the nostalgia journal i should say what you're buying is the mailing list of, of, of subscribers. You know, you're, bu you're buying, you're buying these, these addresses that you can, that you can sell to. You're buying the checks that have come in for people who are placing ads from their various fanzines and stuff. Uh, it's not, it's not insignificant, you know, like, did, is this the one that there's a circulation of 8,000 yes. of these? That's, that's not, that's not insignificant. The, the direct market comic shops pretty much brand new pretty much brand new man they they exist a little bit uh certainly seagate is is doing its thing on the hush hush the qt at the very very least uh but bud plant is in the game yeah there's a there's a substantial bud plant ad in, in this issue <laughs> and of course dude like uh, if you want to read the rest of this see, uh, see ethics of page 17. why would they do that why wouldn't it just be on the next page it's a good question. I don't understand it. Because a bunch of this magazine is that way. Like, yeah. there are several of these articles. And that's how magazines used to be. Like, wrestling magazine. Every magazine I would get would be, like, continued on page 78. And it's like, why and is it, it? it? It makes sense when you have color signatures, but there's no color here. Right. So many of these ads are of this sort. It's just for other zines, you know, competitive-type publications. Yeah, that, that just came and went. Um, viewpoints. I... 
I didn't find myself reading the uh, the the interview. I mean, the letters column too too much. Jimmy, did you pull anything? I, I pulled that this is really uh, internet, you know, negative 2.0 or something because that's what a lot of these sound like. Like the sure. comments that you'll read online about whatever disgruntled thing. Uh, one of them that stands out is somebody complains about the 35 cents and how they're done buying it. It's not worth it. The comics are bad quality. And at that price hike, they're out. Yeah. So that that was one that stood out. And you got names, man. Mike Barr, maybe before he's really uh, a professional at this point. But uh, to be a letter hack was a kind of a badge of honor. You know, yes. we're going to have a Marty Pasco interview and he was P Pesky Pasco. That was like his letter hack name. This A++, um, I have some of these, and it made me wonder, like, Megaton Publications, is this connected to Gary Carlson's I think, Megaton? I, th I think it is. I just grabbed that, uh, that collection, and I think, I think they show off uh, the A++ A plus in there. That's really interesting to me, because, like, Carlson, that adds one more chapter to his publishing legacy, uh, and really puts him in a position of, like, publishing from the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, even to today. And if I remember correctly... The, these are those odd shaped size things that are half inch too tall or something. You find them in the, in the quarter bin kind of bent up. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's quite possible. They're definitely that weird. They're the pre-80s black and white explosion. Black and white explosion. Right. This is, this is funny. International Fandom Inflation Control Club. So become a member of the IFICC. And what these guys are doing is uh, they're trying to push against speculators the speculator market <laughs> have you guys heard this before have you, have you seen any of our wizard coverage <laughs> i i don't understand what any of the benefits are beyond getting addresses everything seems shit. like it's just i want your address yeah it really feels that way and they try to make a you know a point of what they're going to do here but it really feels like what we're going to do is sell you alternative collectors yeah yeah we're... and it's just kind of buy from us. We'll give you fair prices. They they talk about like the um the guys who sell comics that are collectors first. Right. Th those are the good guys, and then like the speculators are just these businessmen. Yeah. And I don't know, man. I, I think you could really have a debate on the merits of uh, both directions. Totally. And and there are guys like like a Bud Plant or a Bob Beerbaum, who identify good comics. Bill Boyshell, who identified good comics in in the seventies when other people weren't looking at them and then you buy you order you know a thousand giant yeah. size x-men yourself and then when all the stores are out like supply and demand this wsa logo i don't know what that is and it appears several times throughout this issue like you know mostly in conjunction with different fanzines so it was some kind of i don't know what exactly same with the ncbpa i see that's a publisher's alliance um, these organizations, like, I have no knowledge of what they are. Right. Uh, weird world. So we got comics reviews, and uh, the very tippity top one is by Kim Thompson, and he is extolling the virtues of Weird, weird World, uh, the, the, the series that shows up in, in uh, Marvel Premiere, and he's hoping that, that uh, with all that Marvel has on its plate, that they're not looking too closely at weird world or, or the, the the weird the crazy stories that are coming uh through this thing so that you could just get some varying content with a marvel logo on it yeah i'm very uh positive about the artwork mike plug and alex nino on inks um pretty P straightforward review p craig russell is going to be coming s soon enough uh, i think he's already involved in star reach uh we'll we'll we'll, we'll see you know in some later stuff 
This Avengers review now. Jesus. It's a long one. Jesus. Lengthy. And it, and it goes on to several pages. You yes. know, you got to go to page 36 to finish <laughs> it off. It's talking about every single panel. And it is not by Kim Thompson nor no. Gary Groth. So, so it, nor any of the other Big Willie comics journal, you know, scribes. Does uh, it does? It, this is an Avengers annual. It's a big story, and it does praise Jim Starlin in his art. Yeah, uh, critical a little bit at times about certain things he does and, and how busy some of the artwork is, but overall, like pretty much uh, positive on the Jim Starlin work. We're back on the ethics, man. Finishing up the uh, conversation about the plagiarism in media scene makes me wonder about how the the um, business model of that the the journalist who did the original article because he. It's like uh, he's able to syndicate that himself mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, I think there was, um, wouldn't have been Associated Press, but something along those lines where yeah. you could syndicate, where you could have an article available, and then if a newspaper wanted to run it, you would get X amount of money. Not dissimilar from comic syndication. Sure. It's just this might be more of like an article-by-article article basis. Yeah. Which is how you could have newspapers in all these different markets. You know, Most markets aren't going to have be able to have international offices and things, but you could then syndicate... Uh, articles from these bigger resources and a good a good case for a freelancer journalist can make a living because they could write an article and get paid for it 50 times totally hey if you go back one second just to this ad i wanted to point out the wsa stamp right and this is a reference library about american comic books very hefty price tags 575 to 675 for four volumes and jerry bells is the name of uh the the person behind this coming out of michigan detroit michigan so I'm interested just in all of this, like where fandom's at. You know, Michigan's a really good comics uh, state. Yeah. And then Jerry Bell's is a name that I feel like is one of those big names in comics fandom. Yeah, and totally. pretty ambitious. You know, like this comics journal, 75 cent cover price, I believe. Comic books, 30 or 35 cents. And he's selling stuff for six or seven dollars. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 nuts, man. Uh, we have like the, uh, the Encyclopedia of Comics Fandom by uh, Bill Shelley. Uh, that has all the big Willie's names with little articles to tell you who they are, man. So that's how you, Jerry Bell's all over old school comics fandom. Uh, he might have been the all in color for a dime guy, maybe. I can't remember who that, that is. Um, it's also, if you read what these things are, they're basically like a, like a character histories. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, like we talk about artists and stuff. Some of the information just wasn't available, but it's not where those early days of fandom were. Second Genesis, uh, specialty shop it's fun to look through yes. these ads to see what kind of stuff is out there man so like seven issues of heavy metal exist corbin's already a name yep uh you got the rbcc like that that is a very famous zine uh 137 issues of that out there unbelievable and we've gotten some of those in the mail so i have a few of those in in my collection yeah that might be mark grunewald yeah there's a mark grunewald sighting in one of these ads that i that i saw like an early mark grunewald piece here's your various media scenes so that's your Starenko. uh only issues seven nine of uh star log are out so it's still pretty early there but you see several pieces of star wars memorabilia already sojourn uh which is the yes. joe Kubert self-published effort here's your saber by mcgregor paul galacy with no mention of of eclipse comics yeah i can't remember if they were called eclipse in that first printing or not you know to your sojourn point very interesting comics project and we have a video on that in our archive yes, so we do. go check out like joe kubert being kind of on this front edge of what's the direct market and how can we do comics art uh in this new market i think heavy metal was a was a catalyst for a lot of these ideas too absolutely man 
And this is a continuation of that ad. So pretty big, big collector here. And you see Witsend, and there's no number listed. So I'm going to guess that's Witsend 1. I don't think so, because I think Witsend began in the 60s. Okay. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was like a late 60s effort. So so I, I just don't know uh, what, what, what that's about. There's also Heroes, Inc., uh, number two, and uh, that's on my list, Heroes, Inc., number one, which was a Wally Wood self-published uh, comic book right. at this time. So guys are definitely trying, like, how do we how do we get around the Marvel DC stuff? Totally. Foom is out there, number 15, 16, 17, being sold. Gorblimey Gorb- Press catalog, that would be Barry Windsor yes. Smith. He, he's, he's moved off of uh, his Conan works and is just uh, out for self at this point. But there's some uh, Walt Simonson story or zine or something it's fascinating too like hot stuff number four which would be kind of an underground comic but also moving more into like fantasy side of things squaw Trant number seven so the great ec zine is you know been around for a little bit but part of this kind of collective as well yeah you never see mention of uh alter ego in here which which i found interesting i, I don't think i've seen it spotted at one time I like this piece of uh, Star Wars art. You know, I feel like the way Star Wars has evolved, like you wouldn't see stuff like that anymore. Totally, man. Uh, Star Wars, the $8 million Saturday matinee by Frank Catalona. And this is from a panel, his point of view from a panel he was on with some, I guess, film critics and Harlan Ellison. Yeah. And the film critics all spoke first down the line saying they liked Star Wars and then Harlan Ellison basically telling them why it wasn't as good as they think. Right. (laughs) And he's got some time on his hands to uh, soak up Mr. Ellison's wisdom, and he point by point, you know, describes why he thinks Harlan Ellison is wrong and and, and they're all right. Uh, basically, saying that it it's self aware enough to know what it is. It's not it's not trying to be great filmmaking. It's a fairy tale, and you got your, you know, boy he leaves home, and even Lucas admits like just the reverse engineering of the Joseph Campbell you know, uh, idiom. One of Harlan Ellison's criticisms, according to this guy, is that the best character is R2-D2. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it does make me think, like, he criticizes the characterization is is the bigger point there. Yeah. And I kind of think, like, wouldn't we all agree with that? Wouldn't George Lucas agree with that? Like, if he could just have, like, not actors, but some, you know, almost animation or something, I feel like that's what he would opt for. Right. So it's kind of a accurate, I think, description um love this piece of fan art also look at the vader and how much that is not the vader that we all know it's a good comic book vader though that is a hard helmet to freaking yes. draw man it is and you know again speaking of the time of like this is early early star wars before like we all kind of knew it and and had reference everywhere and it's kind of fun to see the fan response absolutely hot shot in the issue jimmy this is the stuff that you would get, what you would have access to. You know, I'm sure those came in press kits, and it's like, well, let's dress up our uh, our zine and use some of this imagery. The differences between uh, fantasy and sci-fi <laughs> explored. You know, that's that's old school fandom conversations. Look at this ad <laughs> for Advent fanzine. It's so great. Tim Corrigan drew this piece, man. We oh, know we know him. We know him from space, like one of the sort of uh early kind of mini comics guys that kind of spent spent his career doing mini comics you go to his table and he'd have 50 60 70 different comics he did over 25 year period yeah did a uh did a zine in the 80s that was uh reviews of mini comics and stuff that, that's really cool in magazine format size and who knows if we go through the 80s maybe when we hit up to that year we'll look at one of those as well i get nuts whenever i get when i see uh hand lettered yeah uh 
advertisements. It's pretty good hand lettering too because he's doing like some different sizes and bolds and italics and stuff. Yeah. This looks like a uh, Kennywood mascot right there. I remember <laughs> nice. there's like that pink one. What was that one's name? Do you oh, remember? Oh man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All oh right, boy. Man. This is where Kim Thompson <laughs> unleashes. Marvel's fouled up film book by Kim Thompson. Uh, worth mentioning that Jimmy and I took a look at the uh, Star Wars film adaptation uh, in Treasury Edition format on, on the channel by Howard Chaikin, Steve Lee Aloha, Roy Thomas. Uh, that's, that's what's being covered here. Um, Kim Thompson is going through those issues, the entire film adaptation of uh, the first Star Wars movie. You notice it ain't called A New Hope. It was just Star Wars. And just point by point breaking it down about how the comic has failed. Successful film, good for what it is, shit comic. Uh, Howard Chaykin hacked out the, hacked, hacked the artwork out, rushed it. These first two paragraphs is him saying like, what, why something is that way? You know, like, why is it look this way? Possibly a deadline, possibly this, possibly that, probably this, you know? And he's kind of going through and saying what's bad and then like speculating on why those things were done the way they were done. Doled out in about 17 page increments uh, in the issue format. So he had to create these arbitrary cliffhangers at the end of each ish that were dubious at best at times. I know them from the treasury, so so like it's more seamless. Uh, making arguments that maybe you shouldn't verbatim take every word from a movie and put it into a comic. Um, it does make mention of the, 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 the extra scenes, the Jabba scene and things that were put into uh, One of the positive the things is uh, that opening scene that's cut from the movie but included in the comics, Kim Thompson thinks is a good scene. Yeah, yeah, with, uh, with uh, Biggs and uh, Luke mm -hmm. on, on uh, Tatooine. Uh, goes deep enough to criticize the color. And uh, what he was paying attention to is how the colorist decided to color Darth Vader. You know, if you went for like the bluish gray hues, he's down. But if you start putting red to the eyes, that's a different story. Yeah, it talks about the different inkers working over Chaken and their approaches and what works and doesn't. Um, some of the Chaken choices that don't work, like the, uh, what's the scene in the bar? Yeah. The, the shootout with Han Solo and that it just doesn't read the same way based on Chaken's interpretation and how he displays that scene. Um, it's it's an interesting article in that it is so focused right. on the comic, and this is something that I wonder: is this new for comics criticism? Right. Because I don't know that I've read any other comics criticism, you know, from earlier or from this time period that really goes to this level of detail where he is looking at things like the art, the storytelling within the art, the craft within the art, such as the inking and coloring. So. You know, I, I could see this being something where the Comics Journal goes, yes, this is what we're going to do. We're really going to look closely at some of these comics. And, and here's a question, because uh, Kim Thompson, he comes, he comes from Europe. And I wonder if uh, this kind of criticism was already happening in Dutch fanzines and maybe even bigger magazines over there. Who knows? Uh, ultimately, all in all, Star Wars is an artistic flop and a commercial blockbuster. I'm sure Marvel feels awful about that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, poke, poke fun at himself in a little bit. You know, spent spent 2,000 words S talking shit, but it doesn't Snarky matter. before snarky was a trend. <laughs> Rest in peace, Uncle Kim. Yeah, no doubt.
Look at these zines. Tell me you don't want them, Jimmy. I, I'm, I'm so taken by, by this. It's, yeah, it's wild. It's a different time period. In these various smaller ads that you see, you never see X-Men mentioned. That That is a non-entity of a of a comic. Uh, you mentioned earlier, like in Off the Record, like uh, you don't you don't see Daredevil showing up right. in any of these. Yeah, it's something that Tom Scioli had mentioned when we were talking Frank Miller's Daredevil run and how he really made that book successful and it was nothing before that. These ads are proof of that. Because you have to imagine, why is Daredevil not listed? Because it's not even worth the space, you know, to advertise it. Right. Like, these are dime books or something back then. And some of these ads are several pages. You know, I think this is the same advertiser, and this is page three now of that ongoing ad. How about Heroes, Inc. 2? Second listing of that that I've noticed. It's funny how that works, too. You know, that becomes a magazine size with issue two compared to the first issue one. Um, I'm under the impression, and I can't cite why, but I think issue one was kind of distributed to army bases and maybe not well distributed, period. Right. And then you see like almost this growth in the magazine market for whatever reason, probably for par profit margins. You know, it was probably if you could sell a similar number of copies, but now you're charging twice as much because it's a magazine, everybody gets a little bit of money that way. I remember hearing about Rockets Blast as being like the first place that a lot of people's uh, works showed up, writers and uh, artists. I wonder so, if I have any of those. Sojourn One being, yeah. being highlighted here. It's pretty cool. These Charlton Bullseyes, I've bought a couple of those. Cartoonist Profile, I think is one of those underrated comics magazines. And in some ways, that would be your connection, I think, to Comics Journal True. thematically. Because Absolutely. you're interviewing real cartoonists and going in depth with them. Yeah, there'd be photos like in their studios and shit to go along with the conversation. cool thing about Charlton Bullseye is that... Uh, you're going to get, whenever you see one, grab it, because you never know who's going to be the artist in there. Like, this one right here looks like a Joe Staten E-Man. But uh, the the sort of thing about it is that, um, like Eric Larson said, you don't get paid, but you get published. And at this level of the game, it actually paid some dividends to see what your work looked like in print so that you could manage your, your inking and stuff like that. How about this? Steve Canyon is going to be mentioned a couple of times in ads because they're starting to reprint Steve Canyon at this time period in uh, softcover collections. Yeah, I don't know who the publisher is. None of the ads know. talks about that stuff, man. I wonder if it's early NBM. I just don't know. I have know. no idea. Scorchy Smith is also reprinted, and whenever they describe that down here, they talk about how this is an artist's art. This is the artist artist look at. Right. Uh, no Sickles, of course. Yeah, Kelly Freeze, art books. Satan's Tears is an Alex Nino art book that, that pops up in a couple of these places. And it's also interesting that these catalogs are not huge. You right. know, you look at a couple of these ads and you'll see the same titles. Uh, Bill Stout, Barry Smith, Von Baudet. Yeah, and you can see it. Frank Frazetta posters. Yeah. AC Portfolios, that might be noteworthy because I think Russ Cochran had a hand in that in doing that before the hardcovers. So we're going to start to see that. That could be building his money chest to get into the hardcovers. Yeah. And building his mailing list That's to true. sell hardcovers. Got the A-plus stuff from Megaton. Eric Kahn. That, that's, that's a book I have. I have some I have. of those, yeah. 
Fat Freddy's cat. So, dude, probably like one of the very few undergrounds that have been mentioned. Like shout the undergrounds are done. Shout out to Evan is uh, Power Comics. Five <laughs> issues of Power Comics listed here. How about this one? Now, this is going to really like root it into a period of time. Quack number five. Uh, with stories including the Beavers by uh, by Dave Sim, so wow. this so this is pre Cerebus. That's what I'm saying. Like we don't have ElfQuest here. We don't have uh, we don't have Cerebus. We have these these ground level comics. These the Mike Friedrich stuff. I think Quack is a Mike Friedrich. Star Reach yep. absolutely is. P. Craig Russell is on the scene. That that uh, Parsifal story is like a legendary. So it's like one of the most noteworthy stories like in uh, in Star Reach that a lot of um, cartoonists would reference as like being being important to them. And, you know, he was at the cutting edge of of comics artwork. Uh, he'll be referenced a lot by yes. Gary and Kim in, in subsequent issues because it's it's kind of it's, it's what we had. It's all we had. Yeah, definitely legacy kind of stuff too, because somebody brought up the War of the Worlds, the Marvel premiere or something yeah. that, that Pete Craig Russell had done um, at Heroes this year and got a big clip of those. So like, definitely a legacy there. It's neat to see these comics because it's a mashup of something like you know, Northern Light is a is a superhero, early superhero comic, right. but it's also on the same page as like um, Slow Death and Rip Off Comics. So you have this like head shop undergrounds as well as the beginning of direct market and self-publishing existing together. Like that's the time space here. Totally. And, and, and quack obviously, uh, is an answer to Howard the duck, which had such massive popularity that, uh, listen, Marvel doesn't own the copyright on ducks. So we're going to make our own duck comics, uh, in some years, five years from now, the, the comic book company, Comico, Comico, uh, their entire business, starts by the money they made by drawing duck commissions at comic cons weird this is for that maurice horn book about uh the comics of the american west somebody sent this to us like i like i got that in the flipper oh interesting yeah. i was gonna say maurice horn we looked at the encyclopedia of comics that yeah. maurice horn was a big part of uh, an amazing book so it makes me curious like what else horn's doing um, you know, when I saw this ad, that was the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, Jeff Darrow hit me up about, like, when we did that, because some of the dudes that we talked about, like Misao Kato, who was, like, one of the few Japanese people mentioned in there, uh, Jeff Darrow knew him, and he knew this Maurice Horn stuff, but there was a different book, uh, and, and I, I did buy it. Um, I think it has to do with, like, Euro comics, but it's it's an English uh, book. So this guy was a deep-cut uh, academic. Yeah, it makes you wonder like who he's hanging out with and having conversations with. Because totally. there's that, that small list of people that would have been doing work in that direction. This is pretty straightforward, just advertising things that people want or things that people are selling. Interview with Martin Pasco, <clears throat> Pesky Pasco on Marvel, Neil Adams, fan, Neil Adams fans, quote unquote relevance, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, cinema, violence, Editorial policies, TV, the comics code, collaborations, future of comics, and bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> how about that typesetting, man? When, when, when you send this off to print and then you see how that prints, do you ever use that font ever again? Yeah, that's, that's something. I wonder how much of that they were doing on their own. Because that's I, like a letter set kind of, I, you know, it, whatever you're able to get at that time. <laughs> 20, 25, 30 fonts you have to choose from. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not uh, paste up. 
like maybe that could be but uh they have such great stories of larceny gary and and mike on how they acquired their equipments and stuff like gary told me this story and probably even for this exact issue because it's a little typeset um they would take temp jobs like at the newspaper wow and stuff like that like he he had a very fast typing speed gary did and he had access to, to the building. I think he might have talked about some of this on one of our interviews, even. Yeah, yeah, we did do an interview with uh, with Uncle Gary. Check check that shoot interview out. But uh, basically, it was a collusion between he and he and Mike. Like when he left one day, he took there were there were two good waxers <laughs> at at the uh, at the newspaper. Well, there were two waxers. One was good, and one kind of sucked. And this whole thing happened where he sent Mike in came back with the waxer, of course took the bad one. So they went in again and, t- and took the good one also. I, I think I think the newspaper, the statutes of limitations well up, man. This would be, you know, 50 years ago. But uh, that's what they would do, man. They would get bond paper from these joints. They would just, just rob them for Fantagraphics, man. Just kind, of, just kind of start things up, dude. I think Pasco was the writer of Swamp Thing before Alan Moore. Yes, he was. It was that it was that second run, you know, that saga of Swamp Thing with the ones that Tom Yates drew those first issues. But the comic that like we probably know him best for, we did not do an episode yet and it's crazy we didn't. But the first issue special Dr. Fate that uh Simonson draws. Oh wow. Like he's the writer on that one and that's a pretty special comic to me. That was that was an old uh flea, mar- flea mm-hmm. market find for me. Uh in lots of ways I I there's a lot I dig about this this interview, man. This this dude is pretty uh pretty progressive in his thinking with certain things man yeah his background is theater and i don't know if that informs some of these ideas that he brings to to bear you know as opposed to somebody who comes up as like a fanzine guy and then he gets into comics uh pascal seems to have a little bit more i don't know distance from the comics fandom part and he's able to dig into some of these topics in a way that pretty critical of, of where comics are at this time yeah sure man and uh they, you know they don't know the answer so they're going back and forth and uh the the um interviewer there's at least two interviewers yeah conducted by jay zilber with help on the sidelines from harry b we'll call him rich morrissey pat o'neill can that be patrick daniel o'neill from, could it from, could it not be from the first you know couple years worth of wizard magazine it has to be it's gotta be i think he does a big stint on amazing heroes as well so yeah that's that's my money it's gotta be it's a weird intro because the intro is mostly about the interviewer as opposed to like martin pasco and you know what books he's writing and what his credits are and stuff one hopes they'll fix that in uh, future issues of the journal yeah i think they do so uh let's get in let's get into some of those things man uh where do we start Oh, one of the interesting places that we're starting is about collaboration. So, okay, so the collaborative part. We could probably just, like, hit, hit all of these things. So collaborations. Uh, you know, he is talking about, you know, more hands in the soup, the more kind of compromises that are made. But they're wondering, they're wondering, and, and you know, what's the answer? Like, uh, just a single person making a comic? That, that might not necessarily be the answer either. There's and, no answer that he accepts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that has its own set of problems and biases. Yeah, yeah, he... He is really like uh, Doctor Sp- Mr. Spock, like in like he. This isn't an era of like much media training, but he's clearly aware that this is going in print, and that's going to be the final word. So he like tries to hedge every answer. There will be a paragraph of his hedge that um, 
will make it possible for him to 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 answer the question but he does point out very very sound things man about the problems of being just like a, a single creator not not having that that extra brain working on the thing um you know it could be a limiting thing in terms of uh you know mainstream comics i'm i'm fine with uh the vision of a single person warts and all but you know for a, a, a kid's product like like mainstream comics it's got some trouble with that uh one of the early dudes that i see being critical of of neil adams storytelling approach which which i found uh i, I was in agreement with uh, a lot yeah and he gets really in depth with some of the ideas of like filmic storytelling and how it's connected to clarity uh you know like in comics essentially describing comics as like um what does he call it uh it, it's like it's it's editing essentially in film right cutting yeah jump cuts and like like comics is comics is a film that's just jump cuts is kind of what he puts it. it's not a second a second thing like the fucking faucet dripping or the hat getting taken off on the understanding comics cover right and it takes like he spends a lot of time explaining some of these concepts like he does two columns on the 180 degree rule i, th I you know it's just new concepts probably the first time a lot of people have read this it stuff, probably so is. they're so ignorant to it you know like like film exploration i mean george lucas is like gen one film student pretty much you know so like that just happened five years before this so we are in the early stages of like the children of pop culture like you know print is at a a, a level that you know the masses could get it and hold on to it and have fandom like what was fandom in the 1800s uh, ideas or something like I, yeah i saw this one play one time it's very much towards the end of this interview, but he talks kind of about the idea of like uh, youth culture, yeah, and how he doesn't want to do this forever mm -hmm. for that reason. Like I think he's about twenty-seven or something at this time, and thinking in terms of like his five-year plan and his life goals and things like that, and and kind of critical of that youth culture. And if you spend too much time in that area, right. such as comic books at this time period, and their you know their readers are young. In this in this uh, interview, they they use the term relevance. So you're putting relevance in comics, and and uh, you know we know that as like whatever the progressive stuff that's being done today. Like so, it's always been going on, right? And uh, I agree with a hundred percent of what he's saying in regards to that. Where it's like, dude, you could talk, you could deal with anything in a comic, but if you're like got it on the cover that this comic is about the population explosion. And now you're like giving a lesson to kids then they're not going to take the you need to put some sugar with the pill man and that's what he's talking about and honestly that's what that's what like so many people have been bristling about for the past 20 years pretty much yeah and he's talking specifically like the example that he's going through is green arrow green lantern right green lantern green arrow at whatever order they're in um, and it's pretty interesting to hear him talk about it because, like, he said, we get a lot of media coverage for that, but that book just didn't sell. Exactly. It, it didn't sell for years before that, and that didn't make it sell, but we loved the media coverage. Right, exactly, which is to this day. Put this hot shot on a book, you know, from outside the culture, uh, you know, make a girl Thor, you get a little bit of juice, but ain't nobody buying it. But he's describing like how you can have such things and as as part of storytelling content which i think everybody's a hundred percent in agreement with yeah he he also says that he doesn't have numbers on sales of any of his books right 
which I, makes it hard. Like some of the stuff that he's saying is a little bit harder than to parse because like, well, how are you applying this? Right. Like, and he kind of points that out. Like, it's really hard to tell what makes a successful book. And we're back to that today, by the way. Like numbers, some of these companies protect those numbers. Like you do not get to see them. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I don't know why. And I don't know how that's a good thing because how do you know what is working? For sure. Like they know you don't check this ad out right here for original artwork. For the measly sum of $30 each, you're getting John Byrne pages from Iron Fist. And dude, 14, is that for the first Sabretooth? You could have wow. bought, bought the first Sabretooth page for uh, 30 bucks. It's amazing to look at this. And then like, I brought a Heritage auction catalog that we're going to look at later <laughs> to see like how these pages would be presented, you know, 35, 40 years later. Yeah, man. Yeah, population explosion right on the cover of that Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Right. And, and he gets into like three or four different stories that, that cover that subject uh, and, and how, how they were, how they were disseminated, how, how these, how these stories were told and, and the elegant ways to do that and the inelegant ways, probably the most inelegant is to just like have a big caption uh, on the cover. But he did like a Bottle City of Candor uh, story where like they pushed to the edges of, of the, the, the town or whatever to kind of illustrate the population explosion. And then his criticism is the story reveals that it's one person's fault. And he's like, well, how's that relevant to the, our world? Because population expansion in our world is not one person. It's like uh, the, the world. Right. So, you know, you almost have this idea that's relevant and then you take the relevancy away by having some supervillain be, be the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, this article, and I didn't think about it until now, but he's, he's known as a letter hack. Yeah. And now that he's writing as a freelancer, he identifies differently, but we don't get into any of his stories. You right. know, there's no talk about that. It's it's almost totally like, okay, you were a guy that was critical about all these comics for years. Now you're on the inside. Let's talk about the business a little bit from your critical letter hack standpoint. Yeah. You think the $1 and $2 books are the way the f of the future? I don't know if they'll go at that those prices. $2.50, $5? I don't think. As long as there are still newspapers and there are still some editors who want uh, a funnies page. I don't think the medium is such. Uh, a story told in a sequence of uh, blah, 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 will ever die. So he's like... Defends the, the art story. form, but but saying that the comic book is going to change. And he says in 10 years, it won't be recognizable. And that's something I think a lot of casual fans don't think about. You know, like all these words mean different things to different people. Like when I say comics... It's newspaper comics, it's manga, it's comic books. It's the words and pictures right. when I say comics. When I say comic books, it's very specifically a saddle-stitched, you know, six and five-eighths by ten and a quarter format. I totally. And, and uh, <laughs> like, let's get that on the record now because the comments that come in when uh, we say something like, yeah, we we love the comic book. or And everybody's like, well, no shit. But they don't realize that we're talking about this very specific format and right. not just comics in general. Yeah, I, I have no interest in the let's define everything, but yeah. at the same time, I do want to let people know what I'm talking about with that. No, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, and I mention it here because like this is a conversation that has gone on forever. Like as long my entire life, I'm born in '77. This is printed in '77, so literally my entire life, there's been a conversation about the comic book format, and and whether it's done. How about Julie Schwartz's uh, flat files that are full of uh, ideas? Like, mm -hmm. I, I'd be curious what that is. And he says that so many of those ideas do come from the letter hacks who uh, essentially 
his thoughts are the note the idea of like a no prize thing where people call up or send letters and they have a criticism about something going this way or that way like you could just make a story out of that and and you know tur- turn it into something yeah and he says sometimes you can do that and answer that question in two pages and then you get 15 pages to play around as a writer totally uh which he does describe the differences between marvel and dc at the time are that uh dc wastes a lot of good story opportunity because marvel might do a several parter and uh you know explore something in greater detail but uh dc might get the germ of a cool idea and really shoot their load really pretty fast also there's no real continuity in dc comics because uh, of the little fiefdom system that they have set up and that's going to come up in conversation here of the little fiefdom setup where you got like your weisinger supermans and julie schwartz doing other stuff and the kaniger Kubert's doing the war books so uh these little fiefdoms they never kind of intermingle and now you got earth two three earth three thousand uh you could see within the body of this conversation that we're going to need a crisis on infinite earths at some point sooner than later and i'm in the process of reading jim shooter bibliography of dc comics and and i'll read the entire comic he doesn't write you know he'll he'll write the supergirl backup feature but i'll see where superman is at that time there'll be two superman stories of like superman from the year 2000 and then a different one that's superman from the year 3000 and so what the fuck are you guys doing here man yeah uh mark grunwald who would be known at marvel as having that continuity in his head totally so you get a, a an early reference of mark grunwald who before he enters the system is still already cataloging and uh, chronicling some of these histories this is fun man spidey super stories in this ad uh so that that's from the electric company so so that's happening dude you're going to get to see a little bit of uh spider-man on the tv he don't say nothing he speaks in thought balloons and he might uh bump into morgan freeman a time or two (laughs) man all of these ads are fanzines yeah well this is uh oh yeah this is like uh geared to the uh what you call it the the comics journal but it is it's its own uh, zine. And I wonder if these are part of the people that took out the IFICC ad earlier in this issue, because that shit's underlined 50 times right. in this block of text. <laughs> yeah, see, and they're part of the WSA also. Uh-huh. They're pretty late period, because like the other ones we saw have a stamp of like 100 or 105. These guys are 1,000, man. They're, they're, they're at the on the bottom of the, uh, the pyramid scheme. I wonder if the W and the A stand for writer in America. Right. Oh, and, and, and now we're talking, uh, now we're talking about how uh, the books are kind of exploding. There, there's there's a lot of material being put out, certainly by Marvel at this point. I guess I guess they're done with. Uh, was it Independent News? Was that was that the DC DC uh, distributor that they were a part of? I I, I think I, that, I'm not sure. I think that's done. So they're exploding, and uh, they're just kibitzing about the lack of editorializing uh, that is done. Man, bad bad spelling, bad grammar. Uh, fucked up stories that are happening in Marvel because of the split energy. This 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 the spread energy of like the three or four writers who are writing everything. Yeah. They bring up a quote about originality and he's like, even that can be overrated. Like the story's got to be good. Right. They, uh, he mentions about like, they're not even sure about how long and what ages read the comics. Like Marvel, I think is something like a three year window that they believe are their readers. And DC is something like six months, but, I don't know where any of that information comes from. Right. You know, if that's something that just an editor told him once when he asked, because if they're not 
giving numbers of sales, like I can't believe they would have that type of information. Right. Available. Yeah. It's very specific, very specific stuff. That's fascinating that it would be like a three year window before yeah. you grow out of it. Right. Yeah. And you would always like, I would always take that into account when I was reading and as I got bored of it, because it was the cycle. It'd be yeah. like, okay, time to do the Venom story, time right. to do the Green Goblin story, you know, and it was every X amount, depending on the hotness of the character, it might be every year. Now it's just like six books a month or whatever for whoever the hot character is until we hate him. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's so fascinating too. And and like with the model that they built and, they, and having all these extra new books, like they, the administration of these companies, they think so little of the medium that it is a kid's medium because like why would you not try to have some titles to, for late period readers? Like let's let's keep them on the hook forever. You don't have to grow out of comics. Oh, is there a publisher on your Steve? It's called Comic Art Publishing, and I'm thinking California. I California. I think I know. I, I think I have some of this stuff. You can get them at Ides, like in their aftermarket. Yeah, like the, that like, makes so sense. So it's like a one color, kind of landscape format type book that might have two strips per page. It's so good to have have this on record because like it's not like Marty Pasco comes up in conversation for cartoonist cafe. It's the first time we mention the fella. Uh, we're not getting into any of the specifics of his works, like you said, but uh, he definitely has a lot of thoughts. Yeah, and you know, this is the end of the the article, I believe, and he talks about you know um, he's approaching age thirty and wants to kind of be done with this stuff because a lot of people are washed at that point. You know, it's youth movement. What are you going to do as you get older? Which is really funny because we're going to see like the ages of the DC editorial staff yeah. uh, a little bit later in the magazine, and they're a lot older than thirty. And he's like, you know, I can't afford to waste much time, but he's going to continue writing at least into the early 80s. I, right. I don't know how long he writes for DC, but at least that long. So whatever his plans are to kind of like make his mark and move on, sticks around a little bit longer than planned at this, at this stage. They're even having those conversations. They're talking about the code and how kind of, how much of a paper tiger it is already in 1977, how meaningless it is. Yeah, there's some strange, they get into some strange territory here. Yeah, I wasn't even going to say anything <laughs> about that shit, man. Very bizarre ad right here. It, I don't, I don't totally understand this because it almost looks like content. Totally. Uh, it's from, it's from the UK. So what's cool about it is that you get to see um, stuff like the, like where 2000 AD is. It's in its first year of publication at this point house of hammer that would have some of those early uh brian Bolland works that uh are in the eclipse brian Bolland's black book you remember that one mm -hmm. like some of those are in there uh the marvel uk type sh type shit is happening like with captain britain and like ramp rampaging hulk so it's kind of cool for that but i think we will get to see that a little you know elsewhere look at that man battle uh and action weekly uh these um annuals so it's collections from battle and action which were put out of print uh because of the violence and some of the political stuff they were doing in there which made all of those same creators say oh if we do science fiction then that's the sugar with the pill we can talk about all the same stuff we want to talk about but we have plausible deniability you wonder about the the rabid comics fans who see this ad and are like, I gotta order all this stuff. Yeah, see what it is, man. Like, here's your 2000 ADs that are out at this point. We're up to issue 40. And that's not something we saw in the other ads where you see a lot of repetition. 
these are some different titles. Yeah, so much, man. It's your first Tintins that we're getting. It's, uh, and look at this, man. Hagar, the Horrible Collections, Popeye Collections, Lieutenant Blueberry. So there's, there's your Mobius, uh, Asterix. Yeah, and speaking of Blueberry and Mobius, it's like there is some, you know, if, you, if, if you're the crazy person with this stuff on your wall and, and threads connecting everything, you can't connect this to heavy metal now. Yeah. You know, it's starting to uh, make the world of comics a little bit of a smaller place in some ways. Chicago Comic-Con report, Jimmy. Uh, all the players are here, and this dude is giving uh, in-depth coverage on the con. Super bizarre. It starts out with a Chester Gold sighting where Chester Gold shows up early and then leaves. <laughs> like, he's swamped with people. It's weird. He leaves. Right, but I think, uh, I think he was there for four hours talking. Yeah, I think he did a panel or something. It wasn't appear, you know, it was a scheduled appearance, but I think he was maybe a little overwhelmed by the uh, response to him. Yes. Great photo here. We have Stan Lee in a time period when I never see Stan Lee at this era. Right. Very often. And and just, man, a 70s Stan Lee and Janet Kahn. So DC and, and uh, Marvel publisher sitting down and, I don't know, smiling for the paparazzi. Mike Grell, a bit of a, a star on, on page one here. Yep. So it's for first real mention of him. He he just started Warlord, you know. He was uh, on uh, the uh, what do you call it? the Legion of Superheroes with uh, Jim Shooter after Dave Cockrum. Super prolific. I, I'd be kind of curious to get more info on Grell's career because like he's doing comic strips as well as comic books. Uh, you know, anybody familiar with his art style? Clearly, there's a lot of illustrator technique in it. Yeah. Which is to say, like, the guy was working fast, as fast as you could work, pretty much, and, and doing a lot. Yeah, and, and very detailed, too, mm -hmm. you know? Like, uh, I hate to call him a poor man's Neil Adams, but in some ways it had these qualities where it's like there were certain reference material that I think was popular, and then he's figuring out, like, what's the ink line that you put on there quickly, but also kind of feels modeled and detailed. Uh, Howard Chaikin, another one, another early sighting here at the con, and talking about his experiences there. Yeah, selling pages, man, from uh, selling Star Wars pages, dude. You could have bought a Star Wars page at the Chicago Comic-Con off of him. And uh, Chaykin went back into his song. Like, uh, he is a singer to this day. Oh, he's a performer. Anybody that gets a chance to see Chaykin at a convention, take that chance, because uh, you won't leave disappointed. There's your, uh, there's your uh, Chris Claremont and uh, Stan Lee with Legs Akimbo. Yes. <laughs> Again, the 70s Stan Lee, I kind of love this one. Um, but you see Chris Claremont here, too, is, is pushing. You know, like they're using, these guys are using the convention. They're right. promoting themselves, their work, the books they're doing, the upcoming stuff. Claremont has a Ms. Marvel screenplay that he's passing around and showing people at this stage. Yeah, and that's what it is. It, it's like there wasn't like a barrier. It's the way they paint the picture. It's not like there's like a barrier of like table and fan or something it's like you guys are all like in this room and you're just walking by people and, and talking and chatting and, and like like you know a typical convention the, the the writer guy does say that uh chris claremont looks like what mason riesel look like when he grows up and if you're a stern fan you know what that means you know who that is man but there was like one lone chick in there man that had a shirt that she had sharpie or silk screen that said uh chris claremont fan Mike Vosberg, he's a name that's coming up in here. He would have been working on some ground-level shit at this point. So this is this is one of the telling pieces for me out of this issue. Amazing. Janet Kahn is DC publisher. 
you know, we've talked about her a little bit in past episodes of basically coming in from a non-comics background to apply some book publishing ideas to the world of comics. And it's kind of fascinating. There's a licensing fee that she is giving creators if they come up with a character that gets picked up that can be, that essentially DC will then own, but be able to sell, right? Yep. And so like, let's give some incentives to creators to come up with new stuff. And there's like a whole pilot program of how that works. Totally. Uh, but that licensing fee to me, early royalties in comics. Totally. If and you it, can give us something valuable, we'll make it worth your time. And, and she describes morale was low mm-hmm. and trying to create a better atmosphere for uh, for the, the people making the damn comics. So instituting a policy where like you, if you deliver a finished strip, you are leaving with another strip to draw. Yes. Constant employment so that you can't be poached. Uh, one of the little pieces, even in the very beginning, dude, and even the company logo has been redesigned. So she is getting Milton Glaser to design the iconic DC logo that we all know. The best DC logo by Milton Glaser, one of the greatest graphic designers in the history of the universe. Like she put that to practice, man. And, and that logo stood for 25 years calls out the ages of the editors and how like this has to change 65 60 48 years old uh, respectively these editors at dc they had a couple younger editors and one left uh you know it might have been len well i was thinking maybe denny o'neill yeah maybe but but in any event like she recognizes like we need some new ideas here we should so so 65 60 and 48 i think the 48 year old is uh joe Kubert. Okay. And then you got Julie Schwartz as one of those old heads. I think Mort is well dead at this point. I, like, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was thinking Joe, Joe Orlando's probably there then, so he might be... S- 60s feel so old for him. Like, if... 54. Like, I always think of, like, the if you're in EC in the 50s, say 20 this is 25 years, years later. Yeah. Maybe he's 48. I see. You know, maybe Joe Kubert's a little bit older. He might be the 60-year-old because, I mean, like, when does he start comics? You know, he's, like, 15 or whatever. He, he was 12. But then that would mean that I knew like a 90-year-old Joe Cuber, and I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, but in any event, recognizing that, like, we're making stuff for kids, and it's 60-year-old men here that are making these decisions. Like, come on. Yeah. Um, This is great. Gets into the Neil Adams stuff, you know. that This Superman Muhammad Ali, like, how big is that book? I, I know it years after it's released, so I don't think I understood, like, that was a big event. Right. And Neil Adams just makes it bigger, you know, like, like it's amazing. And combine that with the Superman movie release, like the synchronicity of what they're doing there. It's amazing. But she talks about, you know, he left comics for money. So she doesn't say it, but there had to be some, some kind of, I assume like the licensing money, there must've been some money to be like, Neil, come back. Like we've got something, we got something worthy of your name. Uh, talking about the price hike of of just the regular issues and how it's not really going to anybody but to pay to pay for the better product yeah and just rising cost of production but i think she's the one who mentions about like the newsstand distribution and how they'd prefer if the book's a dollar than 35 cents but then you got to figure out how do you make the dollars and they were doing those big hunter pagers yeah or, or 68 page, 80 pages whatever they were but they were the bigger thicker comics and then you could do dollar issues and if you ever wonder when you find those in like back issues or whatever like why people are complaining about 35 cents it's to appease the newsstand distributors which is pretty interesting to think like simultaneously you have now comic shops in the direct market starting to come up so now you've got like these two very very different interests 
between what a newsstand dealer wants and what a comic book shop dealer wants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating little piece here. Pretty cool, yeah. Makes me wonder, like, as Comics Journal evolves, like, how much Gary's putting together issues and going, you know what, more of this. Right. This is interesting. Let's let's keep her on speed dial. Barry Smith is there, dude, with freaking Conan pages showing off pencils. Mm -hmm. I love, too, that Chester Gold is like, you got to get a picture of him if you can. Like, that's a celebrity within this world, you know, in ways that, like, Chris Claremont isn't, at least yet, not yet. And this would be, 77 is his last year of making the strip. He's pretty much done. He, you know, he keeps an office at the Chicago Tribune for a while. I have this documentary that, that I've, I've had this documentary on DVD for years, and I only just watched it for the first time recently. And uh, part of his workday was a hundred mile commute to and from from his house in Woodstock to Chicago by way of train and I'm imagining that that's right he writes on the train and then draws and executes when he gets to the office and maybe writes coming back or something but a hundred mile trip every day it's a long time on a train yeah this is a, an article about a a magazine or I guess not a magazine a paper about Frederick Wortham and basically the comic censorship that comes out of the Comics Code in the 1954 Senate hearings in America and the idea that comics are contributing to juvenile delinquency. Right. As viewed through like a year, I think it's a German paper. So as viewed through uh, the eyes of Europeans looking at this stuff. Yeah. It's very strange. Like they call attention to the idea of William Gaines doing this full page ad. And it doesn't say where, I don't know if it's Mad Magazine or one of the Sounds other like EC it. titles. But uh, the group most uh, anxious to destroy comics are the communists. So this is an ad that he would have put out in the 50s. And kind of like, I, I don't know if they're validating him exactly in, this, it seems like. in this article or what. But yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that this continues to be a part of the comics conversation 25 years after. Yeah. Uh, we're getting some, not really a mea culpa, but some Tony Isabella love or at least making excuses for why Tony Isabella's comics ain't, ain't that good. Uh, Gary in the journal number 32, pretty critical on Black Lightning, which is a video that we did uh, on uh, the channel. We looked at Black Lightning one and uh, pretty critical of Tony Isabella's stuff. But this writer, maybe it's this Dwight Decker uh, person, they came up through fandom with uh, Tony Isabella. And the guy states firmly that you guys in the mainstream, we've not seen the great Tony Isabella works, man. He's got, he's compromised by working for the big two. So it's unfortunate, but you can't blame him. You got to blame the process. I bought, I met him briefly at a show in Philadelphia many years ago, probably 15 years ago now and bought some, some artwork off of him. And, uh, he's in Ohio, Tony Isabella. And I think I must follow him on social media. Had like a garage sale, and it's basically his comps and you know his his comic stuff, scripts and things like that. So, how bizarre would that be to roll into a garage sale like that? Yeah, that's fun, man. Uh, we're continuing the Comic Con coverage from the Chicago Comic Con, and then we get into the fun, uh, the new Adam stuff, where you know he just kind of answers a couple quickies, man. <laughs> no Adams, dude. So. uh I wonder whether he intentionally set fandom on his collective ear with his innovative style. Now, Adam says, no, they're so bad that anything done good seems like a revolution. Very appro appropriate, uh, no Adam's a phrase right there. 
and uh, some more stuff about Green Lantern, Green Arrow, won every kind of award and all sorts of attention. Sure, I thought it was good when I was doing it, but I saw nothing special about it. Talks about the Ben Casey stuff uh, that, that he did in comic strip form for a number of years there. And they ask him, you know, would you do this again, man? Would you get back into the game? And New Adams says, uh, I'll, I'll do it, but I, it'll be my own guy. I'm going to create my own characters and stuff. So that's a foreshadowing. For yeah, it makes me wonder if some of the payoff of that Muhammad Ali Superman story ends up setting up continuity comics. Yeah, uh, like, he, you know, he passes through Pacific right. before that. Uh, heads up the crusty bunkers, man. Any, uh, anyone around at the time to help save a good pencil job from uh, from a bad inker. Yeah, that's fun. And continuity associates. So, uh, and he describes the model. So, like, if you're at continuity, like, he's not he's not giving you work. Like, you're basically a freelancer. He's got a space, and you can rent a cubicle or something. I right. think I think it turns into something much more than that because during COVID and things, he he was showing around the space and it was opulent office with lots of square footage and you know glass walls and all kinds of beautiful stuff he he has some of the artwork from i think he still has the cover to a uh, superman muhammad ali like like in a frame like at continuity oh man what must that be worth i'd be curious about a continuity history and how that develops because i mean at some point he's doing you know like he's an ad agency totally so, yeah he, he calls it two different things you know you got the cr comic shit is the crusty bunker Continuity Associates is the, is the ad stuff. But I have, um, when we were digging with Fife at Ides, Michelle Fife, I grabbed this one magazine, this Charlton magazine format called something like Emergency. It's either like firefighters or like ambulance drivers. And every artist and creator is a crusty bunker person. It's every, like Terry Austin, Klaus, Larry Hama. Like it's the crusty bunker crew put this together, but they name continuity nor crusty bunker is on it it's just like you if you know you know yeah that's and, interesting. It, and it has like a marker cover that looks like a like a neil adams type comp dutch comics as the american as tulips and windmills <laughs> I, I it's by bill sherman but i feel like this kind of thing might have some kim thompson influence quite possibly you know it's an anthology seer it's an anthology uh, book featuring these Dutch comics. Um, most of them translated to English. They talk about one word balloon fell off, so you get like English on top of the character's face and then Dutch in the word balloon. Is this Juice Swart? I don't know about that. But mostly, um, you know, it's a positive review and it's a chance to see some cartoonists working in a little bit of a different model, which of course we would get lots of coverage going forward in the Comics Journal. And if you're looking around the world for the best comics, you got to have some of that European represent, and I imagine Kim Thompson has a big influence on that moving forward. That was an ad for Wally Wood directly from Wood. Yes. So publishing Sally Forth in this limited edition, but you see you're sending it literally to Wally Wood. Yeah, man. Pretty racy ad for, uh, you know, you see some topless, it's a topless Sally Forth. <laughs> Fanzine reviews. Um, I can't call out any specific ones, you know, but it just shows like how much was being uh, printed and produced at this time. Pittsburgh you know, there was a fan, thirst for comics. Pittsburgh Fan Forum by Pen, Ben Poindexter, who is like a legend of uh, Pittsburgh comics fandom. I think I think he passed uh, passed sort of young, uh, but in the old Ides photos and stuff, like he's he's a proponent. I think I think their their uh, little club would get together like in the back of Ides 
and stuff. And, and the Pittsburgh Comics Club uh, co-wrote some Avengers issues and things once Jim Shooter gets on uh, the editorial duties. It frustrates me that I don't know all that stuff, that there's not some, like... I mean, have you gotten any of these zines? No. Like, like, where is this stuff? This Pittsburgh Comics Club is something I've heard of a lot, and I have not one physical piece of evidence from them or who all was involved. Like, was Shooter part of that group? You know, if, if, if they're doing some work for him, like, what was his association with them? Um, I wish that stuff existed in my collection because I'm very curious. There's a, there's a great history of comics here in Pittsburgh, but that is something I hear mentioned but never see. Gary Groth's Always Comes Twilight. Yeah, some kind of like art zine. Yeah, dude, with with all the dudes that you expect, man, from Dennis Fujitaki to Steve Lealoha, Clyde Caldwell, that Fanuccio guy, like uh, Gary. Gary still has like a lot of that dude's art, like at at Fantagraphics. He's got this uh, like in his office. He's, there's like this uh, drawer, you know, it's like a, like a record drawer where you would probably like have held like LPs and shit. And it's just piles of that stuff. I just sat in his office, like, just going through all that stuff. There's, like, even a Bernie Wrightson in there and stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, Bernie was my friend. <laughs> it, it paints such a picture of what comics fandom was at that time period. Yes. And then the, the conclusion of the magazine here are Spider-Man Sunday strips and Howard the Duck Sunday strips. Yeah, amazing. By John Romita. These, these look fucking spectacular. So to print these, you must contact... The, the syndicate. Uh, yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be like a Marvel license. It would be a syndicate license. Yeah, yeah. And probably whatever it costs to run these in your paper. Yeah, 50 cents. 50, 50 cents, uh, you know, per strip or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing, man. It's interesting because whenever you get into Amazing Heroes, the early issues, same deal. Like, they're running comic strips in there as well. And I never put it together that, like, yeah, you would get it from the syndicate and it wouldn't be that expensive. Right. Yeah, it's literally just four-page ad for the strip hey you like the strip you want to see what's going go, go tell your local paper to uh to carry it man we we just had the larry lieber stuff dude in the in the 80s and it was never in our main newspaper but i would i would get both both newspapers in town and i and i, and I had no idea that there was a howard the duck strip right no clue gene colon on that yeah and by the time we get to amazing heroes a few years down the road you're gonna hear about the lawsuits <laughs> Yes, exactly. That, that's the first. It's the first big drama that's going to come up. Uh, you know, in that Comic Con report, the writer is saying stuff like, "It's so weird." You know, there, there's bifurcation in the con, so like, the the creatives are in a different spot. It's kind of like how New York Comic Con is, where like the creatives are in a different wing, and then the dealers are in a different in their own wing. And he's talking about it's weird when you go to one table, and you see Howard the Duck one is thirty five dollars, but you just turn your back and there's another table and it that same comic is on sale for like five dollars like like what is that and those prices are just going to continue to increase and uh that's when steve garber is going to be like damn like i made less money making that entire comic than these dealers are selling it I, I want a piece. He needs to join the IFICC. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Get those damn speculators under control. Maybe it, he instituted it. It's pretty cool, the Howard the Duck stuff. Uh, Gene Colan inking himself, I, I assume. Yeah. No ink or credited anyway. Yeah, I wonder how long that, that lasted because uh, when they were mentioning some of the stuff like the JLA strip, 
uh, it's getting 13 weeks, you know, so it's just like a couple of months, three, like a three month bid. And then like, that's it. It's interesting. All the characters, all the licenses that did get like a cup of coffee or something in syndication. Yeah. Um, it almost always surprises me when I write like Hulk had, you know, comic strips and yeah. stuff like that. And you just don't think about it because it ran probably more than 13 weeks, but not like, you know, no, no big substantial run. Yeah. And a big, a big you know, if, if it, continues it's usually you know some scott has some foreign deal that that makes it worth their while or something but there it is dude issue 37 of the comics journal uh, a completely different kind of conversation to have about the history of comics uh an era that really is setting up the world uh to come you know like we talk about there being uh only one distributor now even back back then, there kind of was one until uh, Chuck Rosansky from Mile High Comics goes to Marvel and is like, you can't legally do this. You can't just deal with one guy. You have to open it up. And the way he puts it, he put together like an 11-point plan and 10 of the points were enacted by, by Marvel almost immediately to like really set off the, uh, the proper direct market as, as we know it. Uh, so I'm sure Su Ling is uh, doing his deal, but like it's when Jim Shooter becomes editor in chief that he starts to he starts to question like what is this Seagate thing to to the guy in circulation, and it's literally a deal that Su Ling has with that guy to just like drum up some more get some more. Man, that's brilliant! I, you, you, uh, I I'm so curious now about that circulation guy because like that is just a, a revenue stream that he has exactly. now developed for Marvel. Like exactly. you wonder, like you give him a VP title and like, let's grow this revenue stream. It's a number that, that shooter, when he talks about it, that shooter paid more and more attention to. It's all profit. Yeah. You know, like you're not getting returns. Yeah. It, it was so inefficient, that newsstand distribution. So I assume that that'll be stories that are covered as we go through here. You know, one of the takeaways from this too, this feels like ancient history to me. This is 14 years before Wizard, 13 years before Wizard. It's not that long ago. No. It's and, really not. And it's it, and this paints such a beautiful picture of exactly where things were and and how things like all the pieces are aligning to create that direct market. You know, we're starting to make more expensive books. Heavy metal is opening people's eyes up to what comics can be. Uh, you were hot shot in movies. Uh, books like Howard the Duck mm -hmm. are becoming successful enough for the creators to feel jacked and juiced up. Yeah, yeah, it's all in here. Licensing stuff to some of the creators that come up with new ideas that the companies are able to sell. So now if you don't get that kind of extra money, you're, you're, you're upset about it. Um, you know, you mentioned movies and we kind of glossed over, but that's what Stan Lee is shifting to and talking about a lot in here. Part yeah. of the reason probably the Chris Claremont, Ms. Marvel screenplay is, is mentioned. I believe Lou Ferrigno is named in here as they're doing their Hulk made for TV movie is a, is a small mention in one of these news items as well. So yeah, it's, uh, it's funny, man. It's not that different, you know, and it's not that long ago, even though it feels like there's a revolution between here and when we get to the early nineties, but Maybe there isn't. So, uh, so the the question is, man, do we continue the comics journal coverage and keep doing subsequents? Do we jump ahead and do Amazing Heroes one or Comic Scene one? 
or do you know when those come out yes i i, I sent you the thing the like if we did a number one of the net another one the closest to this time period is amazing heroes and then i think it's um is that 81 81 so we'd have quite a few comics journals between now and then yeah so should we just keep going with it with this like that's, possibly yeah that's a question i want to leave up to you jimmy and uh the kayfabe audience uh let's let's see where things are going it's gil kane cover and it might be black mark is uh the a focus of uh the the, the next issue so you might get a, a good gil kane interview or something in there yeah, I have a confession. I read Amazing Heroes 1 this week. And so now my head is sort of jumbled up as to what's what. Right. Because there's, there's a Neil Adams piece I came across that he had done at least part of the um, Savage. There was another yeah. going to oh, be yeah. another Savage book. And I don't know if it was all drawn or not, but Neil Adams was on the art on there. And there's a, there's a page of it. And it's like, oh, man, how is that not seen? print right you know like i would love to see that he has like that typeset like savage which i think is really cool look but i think that's amazing heroes and it was not in here i believe no it's definitely not in here um yeah but, but that black mark stuff is is another one of those like really interesting pieces to me in comics history and, and gil kane i'd be very comfortable keeping this going on and also of course we got to see how uh it reacts with the with the uh, audience man i think i think the title of this video is salacious enough to get some clicks Good to go? I am. Okay, favors like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell so that we can notify you when new vids are available. Cartoonist Kayfabe comic book Christmas in July is going to be uh, the last Saturday of this month, next week. Make sure you uh, put your comic book doubles and your uh, duplicates and some of your own comp copies into the free little lending libraries in your neighborhood. We need to increase comic book awareness and that's one way of doing it. Also, uh, we have the Patreon and at our Patreon, uh, you get all the videos before anybody else. If you join us at our King K Faber level, but the vids are brought to you by the books that we make. So Jimmy, let the people know what you got. Yeah, Hulk Grand Design, Plain Janes, and Street Angel Deadly Scroll Live are the books that are in print that you can easily find. My next release this fall will be Street Angel Princess of Poverty, also from Image Comics. So basically, it's a two book set with Street Angel Deadly Scroll Live and Princess of Poverty. You'll get all of the Street Angel comics, and you can pre order Princess of Poverty now. Uh, True Crime Funny is my latest self published comic book. Out of print at the moment. I do plan to reprint it later this fall, but you can read it in its entirety on my Patreon, patreon.com slash jimrug. You can also download it along with several other digital comics at jimrug.com. So if you missed out on the first printings of that, you can still read it right now. Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus coming to you soon uh, in time for the holidays. Uh, collects the four volumes of Hip Hop Family Tree as well as 140 pages of additional material. Make sure you get this thing pre-ordered because we had to print them so now those numbers are limited we're locked in same deal with the x-men grand design trade paperback that is forthcoming for the holiday season uh there are out of print volumes of x-men grand design so this is going to be a way for you to get all of it red room is uh, my latest focus red room crypto killers is the latest season of red room comics there are two trade paperbacks out there right now uh as of uh, this coming Wednesday, uh, the uh, third issue of Crypto Killers is coming out. That's going to be a hot key for uh, Ed Piscor bibliography because uh, the, the characters that I put into the backup of that comic are going to be uh, the focus of my daily strip. 
Jimmy, what are some other ways that the people can uh, support the Cartoonist Kayfabe Subscribe channel? to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts, merchandise, hats, mugs, stickers, and more at our spread shop. That link is also under this video. All good ways to support the channel. Give them those marching orders and we'll be on our way. Read more comics.